Welcome to the Sustainable Clinical Medicine Podcast. I am your host, Sarah Smith. I am a practicing rural family physician and the charting coach. This is the podcast for physicians and advanced practice providers who are ready to step back from the busyness of their clinical day to share ideas, question everything, and redesign their clinical day. We are redesigning clinical medicine to create sustainable clinical days and create time for our lives outside of medicine. Join us for discussions with world experts who are helping design sustainable models of clinical medicine and the physicians or clinicians who have discovered or designed sustainable models of clinical medicine for themselves. Hi, and welcome back, everybody. So today I have guest Dr. Cara Pepper, uh, practicing primary care telemedicine internist and certified life coach in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, who rebuilt her life and career after burnout. She uses forward-facing evidence-based coaching to help high-achieving perfectionists through burnout and career transition. Uh, She provides one-on-one coaching and group coaching and leads retreats and speaks nationally on clinician wellness. Welcome, Cara. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So good to have you here. Um, Cara and I have worked together a couple of times. I've been in Cara's program and Cara's been in my program as a guest coach. And so it's nice that we've crossed paths there. And I thought I would bring Kara in today to hear her story about sustainable clinical medicine for herself and how she helps physicians now with their lives and clinical days as well. So let's hear from you. Introduce yourself to us. Hi, well, I'm Kara Pepper. You know, long before I, I became a physician, I was a professional ballet dancer and The reason I think that's relevant is that dancers and doctors are really the same people, you know, we're perfectionists. We show up at work every day trying to get better and better at what we do. We're lifelong learners. When I couldn't dance anymore, I brought all that perfectionism and workaholism to medicine. And I, and I will tell you, it's what helped me follow the rules and kind of conform to the culture of medicine. And it's ultimately the thing that helped me meet my demise and my uh, burnout. Um, So there's a lot to be said about how that, informed my decision and recovering from perfectionism really helped me get to this place of sustainable medicine. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the short version of my story. Yeah. What did burnout look like for you? Just as, because we say burnout a lot and it's such a individual thing, those parts of it that you're willing to share kind of, what does burnout look like from your point of view? Yeah, for me, it, it was the avoidance of discomfort you know, I wanted to do a good job taking care of my patients. I had a husband who traveled full time and my children were really young. So whenever I felt like things were too much, when I was feeling anxious, when I felt like I couldn't keep up, my solution was to just work harder. And I think so many of us receive that messaging, like it's just a season, just work harder. It's just a tough rotation. It'll be better later. Um, and so I did that. I was good at it. I was good at putting my head down. And the overworking for me really numbed feelings of anxiety or or stress. And so it became kind of this vicious cycle of I'd overwork, I'd create more work for myself that would stress me out. And then I'd try to overcome that with overworking. So 
I didn't feel much in the end, actually. You know, people talk about this overlap with depression or whatever. I felt nothing. I was absolutely numb. I was definitely not feeling those feelings of discomfort, but I wasn't feeling joy. I wasn't connected. I wasn't happy. Like medicine just felt kind of like a drag. Like I was, it didn't like light me up anymore. It's just like I was muted. Everything across the board was muted. But the physical exhaustion piece was finally the part that caught my attention. I literally just couldn't get out of bed um, early on January 2016. And I had to call my partners and be like, I can't come to work. Like there's something wrong yeah. and I need to take a break. Um, and so my my burnout felt like nothing, which was actually pretty terrifying. Yeah. And so you paused work. Were you able to take an amount of time off? Did you know what was going on? Did you think it was something else? I knew I needed a break mm-hmm. for, for some personal things that were going on in the time, marriage difficulties, my mm-hmm. in-laws had died. And because of the stress at work, I knew I needed a break, but I didn't feel that I had permission to do that. It felt mm-hmm. like failure because when I looked around, everyone else was just trucking along. Yeah. But I had a mentor who was like, you need to take a break. And so mm-hmm. I took a sabbatical, which now in retrospect, I think is kind of indicative of the problem. I took six whole weeks because that's maternity leave in America. So like what I needed was six months to a year. And my mentor said like, just take a break. Like this job will be here for you when you get back. But all I could give myself permission to do was six weeks. And that bought me enough time to not feel like I was absolutely on fire. But I wasn't well when I came back, but I knew things had to change in that point in time. Yeah. I love that you had this person in your life. You call her, I'm presuming her, but it could be not. It actually was a man. Yeah, it was a man. Man. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So that person saw you, saw what you needed and was able to give you that insight and you listened. I love all of this. I think this is an important person in our lives. Did you know that this person was this for you prior to this kind of yeah he was a senior member of the practice who'd interviewed me he had always been an advocate for me and supported me and had always given me some encouragement i think he saw a lot of himself in me mm-hmm. um this kind of like frenetic overworker and incidentally when he hit about 40 he took a year off did something medically related, but took a break from his practice and came back. So he had lived that experience in a time where certainly that wasn't happening. And so he saw the same kind of patterns in me and was like, you have to take a break. And I had argued with him. I was like, I'll just take two weeks. And he was like, you need six months. And I was like, fine, I'll take six weeks. (laughs) The negotiation. All right. So he's part of the spotter. Did you have any other spotters in your life who may have been talking to you before you hit this crisis point? Was there other people that you had identified in your life? Uh, I certainly had close friends who Mm -hmm. were worried, but also kind of like knew that I was not listening very well, my parents. But what I perceived at the time was pity and Mm -hmm. failure. People Mm -hmm. would say, I just don't know how you're doing this. And what I would hear was like, what, why are they like pitying me? Like, I'm just going to like suck it up harder and I'll show them that I'm okay Or my mom would be like, you just look so tired. And I'd be like, mom, like, what do you expect? Right. Like, but I, what I wasn't hearing was like, it's okay to be human. It's okay to be perfect. Everyone else is faking it. And like (laughs) this idea that you are so unique in your struggles is actually not true. 
And mm. so, anyway. and there lies the danger, right? Because we think that we are alone. Yes. Yes. Yeah. All right. So now a lot of your work, tell us more now. So you, you are still practicing as a physician and you're also helping other physicians. So what was that transition like for you? So what was your journey into discovering of what you needed from this place where you're in bed, can't get out, taking six weeks off, you feel like you're not quite on fire and now we're totally different. So walk us through what happened next. Yeah. So I'd been doing probably five years of therapy up to that point. Like I wasn't new about trying to ask for help, but I was under the premise, if I can just fix me, then I can be okay. Mm -hmm. And so in that sabbatical, I found coaching, which Mm -hmm. helped me really name the thoughts that I was having and, and help me kind of reframe my narrative in a new way. But most importantly, when I took that break, everyone around me came to me as if I had the answers. Like, you took a break? How did you figure that out? How did you talk to your practice about that? What are you doing for finances? Like, I wish I were that brave. And I was like, brave? Like, I'm not brave. I'm just trying to keep my head above water, right? But it helped me normalize, like, we Mm. are all struggling, but no one is talking about it in a meaningful way. And so- that's what kind of led me to say, well, like maybe this coaching piece, I can support my patients and I can support my colleagues. I certainly didn't think it was going to be a business, but I thought, mm-hmm. why don't I just be more perfect and like have some skills to help other people around me? Um, and it it helped me normalize my own lived experience, which was the, the thing I was most yeah. surprised about, I think. Did you go back to work after six weeks? I went back to the exact same practice that I burned out in, but I had shifted my schedule. I'd compressed my hours. um, And I spent the next five years, what I call rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Like I tried all the things with my schedule. I did five days, four days, four and a half days, short days, you know, a variety of things. And then at some point in there, I started the telemedicine line. And so for me, that was like, okay, great. This will be the way that I can get compensated for all this free work I'm doing and offer a service to my patients. I did not see that being like my, my trajectory. I just thought it would be an augmenting way for my practice. And then the pandemic happened, (laughs) which is like, you know, the, the pivot point for so many of us, but in those early days, um, March of 2020, our practice closed and caution for spread of the disease. And we converted our entire practice to, um, in 24 hours to telemedicine. And even in the anxiety and the uncertainty and fear that everyone was feeling, I was at home seeing patients by telemedicine and I was living my best life. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I wasn't in the frenetic churn of my clinic. Mm-hmm. There was no one knocking on the door, talking to me at my touchdown, interrupting me all day long. I could stay focused. I had long appointment times with my patients where I could counsel them and provide the information that I really thought that, I, that they deserved. And for me as an introvert, this was this process of like really relearning me. Like I need time where I'm not talking to people all day long. And to be home in my house with my dog, I was like, oh, this is what it feels like to not be brain dead, exhausted, depleted, caught in a vice at the end of every day. I actually feel good and I practice medicine. Like those things can coexist. And so it got me started thinking like, maybe this could be something for me. Mm-hmm. And the the real pivot point was actually a really small thing. We were in this after hours meeting, unpaid of course, talking about how to put smoking cessation history into the chart. 
And this inner voice in me that I've been working on getting to know and developing and understanding finally just said, I can't do this anymore. Mm. But more specifically, like, I won't do this anymore. And it was like something I couldn't unknow at that point. Like, I can't make this my life. I don't want to feel like this for the rest of my life. And so that's really what nudged me to say, I've got to step off this um, hamster wheel and create something that's sustainable for me. Otherwise, I won't be practicing medicine for much longer. And so... Yeah. Wow. Okay. So it was an insight. It was a final acknowledgement of, I don't have to, I have choice. I found an alternative way that I think might work for me. I'm getting my joy back. Mm -hmm. I feel connected. I get to do things. I don't feel like I'm on the hamster wheel. Right. And, and there was a real belief for me that like my life was more than what I do for a living, Mm. that I love taking care of people, but and I'm in the sandwich generation. My parents are aging. I've got teenagers. I'm healthy, able-bodied. My marriage is good. Like I don't, I would absolutely regret squandering this season of my life by feeling the way that I continue to feel practicing in the practice where I was. And so I, I wanted to create a way that was sustainable. And so I didn't have a business plan to be very clear. My business husband was like, what's your marketing plan? What's your business plan? What are you going to do? I was just like, I'm going to start a telemedicine practice. I have enough skills and enough confidence that I can figure this out. Mm-hmm. And so the, the punchline of where I am now, you know, I turned in my letter of notification. I gave my practice 10 months to get out. And then I left and started this practice. I took, again, I thought I was going to take six weeks off because that's what you do. But I, in that first week I said, I need like months. So I actually took three months off in between. And then I started a practice that is a hundred percent telemedicine where I'm working in my basement with my dog and I'm able to take care of patients in the way I want to. But I also said, I, I don't just want to have these long mental health. I do a lot of eating disorder care. So I want some acuity care. Like, where can I get that? So then I subcontract with a national telemedicine company and I do acute care for them. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to that, I'm coaching. So I see one-on-one clients and I, and I see group clients. And then I was like, well, what would be even more fun than that? Like, let me start a community. So then I've started like this educational community for physicians and the point of all this is not, wow, I'm overworking again. It's I finally have my peace and creativity back. I have mm-hmm. space in my day where I can imagine mm-hmm. and I feel rested and recovered at the end of every day. So I have a lot of ways that I may generate income, but for me, it feels like fun. It feels mm-hmm. like play. It feels like creativity. And that's the part that makes me, me. It's like I came home to myself to actually like have fun doing something that I'm good at and I love to do. That's the joy for me. Yeah. And finding joy and rest and peace and fun and play as a working physician, that's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Like, can you imagine being happy and not dreading Mondays and also being excited to see your patients? Yeah. I spent so long being like, oh my God, all my crazy patients are on my schedule today. It wasn't the patients. It was me. I was so exhausted and burned out. Like that's not a way to live and our patients deserve better than that. So yeah. Yeah. So you tried everything within your own environment where you had been in the clinic. You had the little window into some telemedicine that felt much better. And you said, mm-hmm. finally, listen to the voice inside and said, okay, we're making this change. Kind of jumped without having a landing platform, said mm-hmm. six weeks off again, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then went, no, this time it's going to be three months. 
love right. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's about this perfectionism piece? Because that's something that you said that um, you're working with physicians on helping them in their days when they're dealing with this perfectionism thing. So how does that look? What does that look like? It looks like a lot of things. As mm-hmm. you know, it shows up in charting. Like mm-hmm. if I can just have the perfect note, if I can not look like an idiot. But for me, career-wise, it looked like this is the way to practice medicine. Very binary. You stay in academics or you go into private practice. And if you go into private practice, you see a bunch of patients and you take great care of people. But like, I didn't realize that 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 is only the tip of the iceberg, that there are so many ways to practice clinical medicine if that's what you want to do. But... (laughs) We have these skills that we can do all kinds of things outside of clinical medicine if we chose to do that. And my real belief for all of us, for anyone who's listening to this call, is like our ledger is in the black. The fact that you exist in this world, everything you've done up until this point, like you owe no one anything, you've done great world, the world is a different, better place because you exist. And if you choose to continue to see patients, it's a choice and you get to choose what that looks like based on your own set of values, your own set of needs. And the idea that there is possibility, variability, and that it's expected for us to be human, to like listen to those things, for me was hugely freeing. And having a spouse outside of medicine, I think gave me that perspective. Like he's expected to grow. Like he didn't take his first job out of graduate school and kept it for 20 years. He's Mm -hmm. expected to change jobs. He's expected to get promoted as as he grows. In fact, if he kept the same job, people would be like, are you okay? Like, do you not have any ambition? Are you the same person you were at 25? And so in medicine, this culture of you just have to take the job you took out of residency, I think is a real fallacy and limits our possibility for contributing. So so the answer to your question, how does perfectionism show up? It shows up like this fixed mindset about how medicine is supposed to be, how I'm supposed to chart, what my life is supposed to look like. Um, no tolerance for anything less than exceptional. And to be clear, you can be competent and excellent and not be a perfectionist. In fact, I find those two things to be almost diametrically opposed, but not entirely. Mm. I agree. We talk about excellent being the best you can do with the resources available to you. And it may not look like how it looked three years ago when you had time um, and like more time with your patient or whatever, it, it looks different. It's, you're not practicing in the same way, but you're still giving quality care. Uh, you're just not doing it with that same lens of perfection. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you, we're talking about that anxiety and everything being too much. So you throw yourself in for more, more and more. <laughs> And you're seeing that as well with other physicians that you're looking after, I'm imagining. Yeah, it really is this permission piece. Um, And when I say permission, I mean permission to one, be human. And being human means we're not perfect. There is no such thing. And the fantasy that we could actually be perfect is the thing that keeps us stuck, holds us back. It's the process of turning in and saying feelings are meant to be felt. That's not woo. That's like their information. I think of feelings almost like data. Like if I can be comfortable feeling anything, it allows me to do so much more than what I'm doing now. Um, and, and so the work 
with my own clients is one, how can we turn internally to say, what is the language that you're using around emotions and thoughts? And then externally, like how can we blow your mind to create something that you may not even imagine? Like for example, you know, like Simone Biles and Tiger Woods and Venus Williams, objectively the greatest at all time at what they do. And they have multiple coaches who are telling them like, let's like expand your own capacity, even though you're doing something no one else has ever done before. And I, I truly believe this is true for everyone, but particularly in the, in the clinician community, like we have so much to offer and to be stuck with the same set of rules we laid out for ourselves at 20 or 25 or 30, it really is hindering us from the life in which we can make the greatest impact, but mostly just have the greatest joy for ourselves. Mm. Yeah, sounds very good. I think that sometimes perfectionism can feel like protecting ourselves from either the judgment of others or the judgment of ourselves. So when you're Mm -hmm. talking about feeling anxious, so you'd work harder, do you think that anxiety was, I'm going to make an error or someone's not going to be, someone's going to look down at this or question my quality of care or my professionalism or my judgment? Is that sort of the parts of anxiety that you were feeling as well? Yes. (laughs) All of that. So perfectionism. Perfectionism, yeah. Yes. Perfectionism is adaptive behaviors that keep us from feeling feelings of discomfort, right? So whether that's, I like the feeling of making A's, I'm going to keep working hard so I can do that. Mm -hmm. Or it's, I do not like the feeling of failure. I'm just going to keep working so I never have to feel that again. Mm -hmm. And so the practical application of that is just like what you said, like, I don't want to feel failure. I don't want to disappoint people people pleasing, Mm -hmm. imposterism, like, you know, I don't want people to realize I'm anything less than perfect. So I'm going to overwork that. And so (laughs) allowing myself to be human took a tremendous amount of self-compassion, but self-compassion is the antidote to perfectionism. It normalizes our human experience. Oh, I love that. There we go. That's very good. So good. Self-compassion. Something that we have to be possibly brave to start, right? That journey of saying it's okay. And when they, so for instance, those patients in the room, you don't want to disappoint them. So you answer question number five that they brought in for the day, and then you've disappointed Mm -hmm. the next person. So now we've got to do something to make them happy too. And that chasing of external validation and it's exhausting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the, the thing I think is more accessible to for people who are pretty rigid or don't have a lot of failure tolerance, like self-compassion for me felt kind of cute, like sticky, sweet, like that's cute for like a spa weekend. But like in my real life, I have real responsibilities where I have to be on top of things. And there's a version of self-compassion called fierce self-compassion, also written by the same um, Dr. Kristen Neff, who's the godmother of all this writing. And in her book, Fear Self-Compassion, for me, it was a lot more accessible because it's aligned with the Me Too movement. It's aligned with like the more anger, frustration, overwhelm, like more activated feelings. And what that looks like is like picture a patient who you see is suffering and you're like, I will not tolerate this. Like I will get you in to see the surgeon, right? Mm -hmm. It's this, it's not okay. It's not just, I will not tolerate that. Mm -hmm. And to be able to say that for yourself, like, day after day, year after year of feeling absolutely depleted for me to say, I deserve to not feel this way. This is not okay anymore. 
that was the piece that finally unlocked for me to say, this is not living. My patients deserve better. I deserve better. My family deserves better. But most importantly, like I deserve better and that's okay to have needs in this world. So the fear self-compassion was super helpful in getting there. So we could even say self-advocacy because that when you get mad and you're like, I will get you into the surgeon, that is that advocacy piece that makes us tenacious for some yes. of us. It's, so it's tenaciously chasing after your own looking yes. after quality of care. So Absolutely. Good. I love this. Okay. Do you want to give us three take-home messages for our listeners? Yes. One is that you are your most important patient. Mm -hmm. You are allowed to have needs and you're allowed to advocate for them. I love that word that you just used. That tenacious advocacy. That's so beautiful. The second is that you know medicine doesn't have to look the same for everyone. It's not an either or. It's a multiple choice exam. And so this is your life. You get to create medicine and in or out of clinical care, you get to create whatever you want. And you never know what hangs in the balance of making those decisions. You don't have to have it all figured out. Really, the next thing is just take the next step. Mm-hmm. And that can be really small. Like, I'm going to email a mentor and ask for help. I'm going to call a friend and say, what's it like in your practice? I'm going to make a list of all the things that really matter to me. I'm going to make a list of all the things that I will no longer tolerate. Like, what is that next tiny thing that you can do to move you along? Because I didn't know that I would be here living my best life, quite literally happier than I've ever been when I said, hey, my patients need some telemedicine four years ago. I didn't realize that my whole practice would become that. But it was just like taking that next step that when you wake up and four years have gone by, like you never know what hangs in the balance of that. So just mm-hmm. go for it. Yeah. Yeah. If we're just going to quickly deep dive into what does telemedicine doctoring look like? So tell us a little bit more about your daily practice, just so people get a little insight into what does telemedicine look like on that side of things? Because it's a difference to where you were before. Yeah. So don't tell my med school professors, but like, I don't have to lay hands on every patient that I see. That That is not necessarily true for every specialty, but in internal medicine, if I don't know the diagnosis by the time we're finished talking, like we're kind of in trouble, right? So 90% of what I was doing in a brick and mortar practice was really the diagnostics and then or the, the history taking and then needing the labs or imaging. So I can do everything that I just mentioned from the beauty of my own home. So I talk to patients, I have hour long intakes with them. And then if we need data, I'll send them to their local lab to get their labs drawn or an x-ray facility. So it's a lot like most clinics run. And so I do chronic disease management, you know, things like diabetes can be very easily managed. The patient gets their labs or they download their um, glucometer information and send it to me. We review it. I can do a lot of urgent care. You know, you think about skin rashes, you can see that stuff, coughs, colds, UTIs. There are obviously some limitations like chest pain, belly pain, acute neurologic stuff, but that's changing. Like in our local hospital, there's a neurology robot. So the neurologist is at home in their bed looking through the computer at the nurse doing the exam. So I think we're really pushing the boundaries of that. Um, There's a lot of technology that's available to patients if they choose to engage in that from digital um, health 
monitoring devices like blood pressure scales, et cetera. There's now adapters for your phone that will act as otoscopes or stethoscopes. So really the the sky is the limit. We've been limited from an insurance standpoint historically, but those laws are also changing. So chronic disease management, acute care, annual comprehensive exams. I do basically all of it. It's almost a full spectrum practice. And then particularly from an eating disorder standpoint, because there is so much trauma, um, I really do find that the the ability for patients to seek care without engaging the healthcare system in a traditional way is Mm -hmm. a huge benefit of this technology. So and it's given you the space to do that therapy you were mentioning as well with patients. Yeah, really. It's, it's a lot of coaching, right? To be able to to be with them through those really tough times and shift their mindset towards um, pursuing health in whatever way that they think that looks like. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I have absolutely loved this conversation with you. Can you tell us where to where people can find you? Yes, absolutely. If you can remember my name, you can find me. So it's Kara with a K, K A R A. Last name is Pepper. Yes, I'm Dr. Pepper. So Kara Pepper MD. So that's my handle on all social media. And then my website is karapeppermd.com. Perfect. Well, thank you again and have a great rest of your day. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thank you for being part of the Sustainable Clinical Medicine podcast. If you'd like to learn more or join us to help you get home with today's work done, go to chartingcoach.ca. There you'll find all the information on the premier lifetime access charting champions program that is helping physicians get home with today's work done with all the proven tools, support and community you need to create time for your life outside of medicine. We would love to see you there. Until next time, thanks for listening.